Hello and welcome to the Canon Rinse Podcast, Volume 11, Issue 508, in which we are discussing The Fool's Errand from 1987. Joining me, Ryan Zhao, in Issue 508 are Jesse Fooks. Is, <laughs> is that too far of a stretch? It's, a it's, it's not nearly the worst stretch anyone has made, so I'll, I'll accept it. <laughs> and um, John, Sam, I can't think of a good, what would be like a good pun for your name? I, I don't know. Puns are definitely more your wheelhouse. Maybe we get James Carter <laughs> on here to try and figure it out. <laughs> ah, there we go. Yeah. John Salmon. Hi. <laughs> and special guest from the computer game show, Captain High Priestoss. Hey, that'll do. Sean Bell. Yeah, I'll take that. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, bit of a stretch on this one. Too early to be getting into this kind of thing. I stayed up way too late playing Elden Ring. We are uh, recording on Elden Ring's opening weekend. <laughs> so um, that's where my attention has been paid over the last, um, I don't know, 24, 48 hours of my life. Anyways, The Fool's Errand. This is a game that... Um, that I hadn't heard of before Jesse proposed it for the pod last year. Um, and uh, it, it was kind of an interesting process. Uh, I don't mean to you know, speak on your behalf, but you, know, you, um, you suggested it as a part of this volume's lineup. And, um, uh, but you were, uh, you know, it, it wasn't on our big tracker. It was a game that you know, not a lot of us in the group had heard of or encountered before. And uh, you were just kind of saying, like, you know, even though we don't have, you know, at least four people who have completed the game, if I can convince, you know, however many people to give it a try, could we at least put it on the list? And, uh, you know, I, I trust Jesse's judgment. He's, he's never steered me wrong before. And so I was, you know, if Jesse can vouch for it, then uh, I, I bet that there's something interesting to explore there. And so I went in, like, pretty much completely blind did a little bit of Googling beforehand, but um, this is, I would say, way outside of like my typical wheelhouse as far as like to to play this game in the first place. <laughs> we have to download a um, like an original uh, Macintosh emulator, uh, which which plays this um, two color game, just black and white. And all the graphics are made of these kind of like pointillism little kind of pixels and, and the gradients that we create with just two colors rather than having like a, a wider array like you would see in uh, in even like black and white games of today. But uh, yeah, it was a very, very different experience than anything that I like typically encounter myself. And so I was, I was really happy. I wanted to say uh, right here at the beginning that you suggested it and um, yeah, really excited to be kind of like pushed a little bit outside of my comfort zone. And um, yeah, now I'm kind of in charge of hosting the podcast about this game that uh, half a year ago I did not know existed. But uh, of course, Jesse is a little bit more of an expert. I've seen uh, one of his um, lectures that he's given as a part of his NYU Game Center uh, classes uh, detailing this game. And um, yeah, he linked a helpful article that he took a lot of the information from that lecture from. And so I think between between you know the research of the three of us and then Jesse's expertise as well, I think we'll come away with a lot of interesting history. And I think that's what this podcast is going to be. I'll say kind of like right off the bat, gameplay wise, I would say the game is on the more like basic side from a mechanics and struct. Well, not even structure. I'd say just from a mechanical perspective, the structure is where it gets interesting. From a mechanical perspective, it's on the more basic side. Uh, but I think that there's a lot to explore with regard to 
with regard to history, with regard to the enigmatic personality-laden uh, creator, and uh, just kind of the circumstances that led to this game's development and to its eventual success. You know, it wasn't a hit right off the bat. It took a little bit of time to gain some momentum, but a very, very interesting story. So, you know, I think even before we get to the kind of basic information, which is usually how we start these podcasts off, um, let's first kind of duck into our histories and um, kind of get a sense of where we kind of come at this game from. So, you know, I've kind of given my general background. Um, Jesse, how did you first encounter The Fool's Errand? Uh, this is a game I did encounter sort of in in nature, uh, where I had not heard of it. But when I first went to uh, college in 1990, all of 1990, you know, you're a, a freshman and you meet the people in your dorm and you end up with these sort of intense friendships that then when you meet kind of your actual group of friends, you still like that person. We don't see him so much. Uh, and probably kind of the one of those people I did keep in the most contact with over the four years was this guy, Nick. Uh, we just were like hanging out and talking about stuff. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm playing this game, The Fool's Errand. And I very much associate this game in that way with like the first three weeks uh, of my freshman year, because uh, he was maybe, I think, a third or halfway through it. But he, I, I think he reset it. Because, you know, he had solved the easier ones and he could uh, he could re kind of see them. And then we definitely beat it. Like, I don't really remember the specifics, but uh, it was also he was also the person who made me a Steely Dan fan. So I have a strong association. <laughs> I was listening to Katie lied a lot while I was playing through this again. Uh, good times. But and yeah, and, and I recalled it fondly. It was on his computer and I never uh, got it on my own. So I you know, played it there thought of it very fondly, but didn't play it again, and then started teaching this 80s class and had not actually played it for more than, I don't know, uh, 45 minutes uh, since I started teaching that class in 2016. But I've had every semester, like, every student has to do like once a week, they play a game and they write a little thing about it. They do a paper at the end. And once a semester, they do like a deep dive where they either finish a game or at least put like, you know, 10 to 20 hours in on it. And do a presentation for the rest of the class where they talk about their experience, where they recommend it, etc. And one of the smartest students I had, or, well, certainly the smartest that did not actually pass the class, unfortunately, uh, did not show up half the time, did not do half the work. But when he was there, he was great. And he did the fool's errand and he, incredibly good taste for, you know, a 20 year old really trusted his his takes on things. And he was just gushing about this game as like the best one he played all semester. And, you know, it is a complete artistic work where every piece connects every other piece and da da da. And I was like, OK, I got to put this on uh, the list. And, uh, you know, the games I usually assign are ones where I uh, like Ryan was saying, I'm backing myself into a corner here. Right. These are like this Prince of Persia. Uh, Trinity, like these are all games where I'm like, I really should play that all the way through uh, for this class, but it's a little long and a little puzzly and hard, and I'd rather just play Space Taxi again. I'm very happy that we went back to this, and I think uh, it will especially be interesting to hear Sean's experience having done Trinity last as the last of my Kakamimi uh, experiments <laughs> in terms of accessibility, because they are, I think, the same year within like 12 months of each other, etc. Uh, but yeah, that's and and I do try to pick things that are kind of some sort of arbitrage for, you know, this slot of like things that are obscure, but I think are more accessible than people might know. And this game definitely rose to the top of that. Cool. 
Cool. John, how about you? When did you first encounter it? Was it kind of coming in fresh with Jesse's suggestion like uh, like I did last year? Oh, yeah, yeah. My history is remarkably similar to the way that you described um, the conversation on the Slack last year about our picks and uh, Jesse throwing this out and obviously everybody not having heard of it or had it on the spreadsheet or anything, asking a few people. And we did we did the Trinity podcast. I think it was the three of us and Leon instead of you, Ryan, last year. And that was kind of the same reason I decided I wanted to be in, uh, involved in that because it's a, a real point in my history of the, the medium that I've got very, very little knowledge about. I mean, these are games that only came out a couple of years after I was born. And by the time I was old enough to appreciate games, I think things had moved in in the more, um, certainly the more sort of accessible space uh, had moved on quite a lot further than the, the basic uh, text on screen and point and click style things which i mean these these games are they're much more complex than i give them credit for by talking like that but when you're six you'd rather play super mario brothers or sonic the hedgehog than something like this or something like trinity that's like a a book transcribed onto the screen but now years later uh it's kind of a fascinating gap in my knowledge so uh, when it was mentioned i thought oh yeah i definitely want in on this you know get some education about something that i intrigued in but never really had that much knowledge of even the existence so i don't think when it was mentioned i had no idea i just knew that it was an old puzzle game and even up to a couple of weeks ago when i started downloading all of the information about it i didn't really know what to expect from that that point of view yeah i've played it over the course of the last couple of weeks it's an interesting one to get into because as i think jesse just mentioned there's an awful lot of extremely good resources out there and mostly from what i found through cliff johnson from the the actual official fool's errand website which wonderfully looks as if it had been created about 15 years ago and never (laughs) never given like a visual over overhaul i love this kind of thing but yeah, they've, he's put a huge amount of uh, resources and stuff on there from extremely easy ways to download and play the game to uh, a whole... Uh, is, there's a page that's got uh, the instruction manual and a really comprehensive, nicely put together hints book that you can read or um, download uh, to packaging and adverts and um, articles and stuff that is all gathered together. So actually, for you might imagine for an old game that might be rather obscure it's really really easy to to just sink in and find out a huge amount about it so yeah very very pleased to to have been part of it and uh sean you tend to have a little bit more of a um a very kind of diverse taste in video games and so this wouldn't surprise me if it was one that you'd had on your radar already but i think that you might be a little too young to have like encountered this natively at the time that it would have been I was gonna say yeah you, released and so how did you come to this one yeah you give me too much credit man I I was two years old when this came out <laughs> <laughs> uh, no yeah very similar to uh, John's experience this is this is basically uh, Jesse asked me and I knew based off you know having done the Trinity show last year that this was if nothing else going to be interesting mm-hmm. and uh, yeah so I, that's that's literally like my reason for being here and i was not disappointed um i think this is i'm i should i should confess uh, and i think this is possibly a major breach of kane and rince protocol i was not <laughs> able to finish this in time <gasps> i know i'm sorry yeah. but I, I feel like i've done enough to be able to talk about it so because i wouldn't i wouldn't have shown up otherwise so <laughs> i uh, also have i have finished the map 
and okay. I know what to do for the final, final, final. Uh -huh. But I, I, I had like an hour left, and I was like, I could either cheat my way through this, or I could eat and probably help the podcast more if I eat. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think I, I do want to kind of go back and like I've. This is a game that is sort of maybe best nibbled at the way that yeah. I did with my mm -hmm. friend, uh, yeah. and that is of course an issue. But I think well, we'll get into it. But yeah, I think less so than with Trinity. I think yeah. the the calibration here is a little more astute. But we'll I, yeah, because uh, not to jump ahead, that this feels quite uh, escape roomish to me in in terms of you know yeah all these different puzzles that then sort of coalesce uh, you know in, in interesting ways and yeah part of me thought like do you know what this this would be a nice thing to like have several friends all sat around the computer and and doing yeah, it together yeah. and because you know it's some of those puzzles. Again, similar to escape rooms, it, it can just be because of the way any one particular person is, is wired, you might look at a puzzle and have no clue, whereas someone else can pick up the slack and vice versa on a different puzzle. And yeah, I, I thought that would have been a really interesting way of playing it. But but yeah, as you which said, ultimately is uh, not a million miles away from the way that it was originally conceived mm -hmm. as a, uh, a book that he penned and then kind of gave away to his friends as as Christmas gifts with these kind of these puzzles that mm. would kind of eventually culminate into a larger meta puzzle. And, uh, you know, presumably if it's being gifted to kind of a group of friends, there's an understanding that they would have communicated amongst themselves to kind yeah. of help each other out with different puzzles. So, um, yeah, I think there is something somewhat communal in the DNA of this one anyways. So let's go back to a little bit of history on what this game is in the first place. Genre-wise, uh, this is, I would say, a uh, kind of a narrative puzzle game, but with the narrative and puzzle occupying very different spaces. It's kind of a series of little kind of storybook segments, like one or two pages of text that kind of explains a step in this fool's journey. Uh, and the main character is this fool who is following a pathway in hopes of uncovering the 14 treasures of the world. At the, the very beginning of the story, we find him about to wander off of a cliff because he has this idea that if you ever stray from your path, then you're lost. And so as long as you don't stray from your path, then you know at least you aren't lost. At least you know where you're going, even if that means straight off of a cliff. And as he's about to walk off the cliff, the sun stops him and says, well, hold on, buddy. What are you doing? Uh, here's a map. You can uh, take this, try to find where you're going. And so the entire game kind of revolves around this sun's map. The sun's map is um, carved up into like, what is it, 88 or 84, somewhere around there, uh, a number of pieces. Essentially, each of them kind of corresponds to a different narrative segment and a different standalone puzzle within the broader structure of the game. Each one that you solve gives you another little square of the map, and then you can go back to the sun's map at any time and uh, uncover the new pieces, and then rearrange the pieces, almost like a uh, like a like a big sliding puzzle. Except there's not the limitation of like movement; you can freely move any piece anywhere. I think if it was a giant eighty piece sliding puzzle, <laughs> I would not have finished the game. <laughs> Hundred <laughs> percent. Although, you, although you can't take the pieces off the board, so it does get mm. a little perceptually yep. tricky. But mm. that I think is part of the part of the friction. It's interesting. At least the the Mac version which I played is it is all kind of menu navigation to go between these little miniature vignette adventures. Uh, you just go up to like the the file menu essentially, and they're divided into chapters, and you can just kind of choose 
not any of the chapters. Some of them are grayed out and have to be accessed by completing puzzles from other chapters, but you're given a lot of freedom, a lot of open chapters right from the very beginning. And so you do kind of naturally play this game in a very nonlinear way. Um, even if you're trying to go through each unlocked chapter or each unlocked um, vignette as you go, you know, they do eventually naturally lead on to you know, various points kind of hopping throughout the story. And there will be locked chapters early on chronologically that you won't unlock until very late in your gameplay. And so it is pushing you to play this in a very non-linear manner and to view each of these encounters and adventures that the fool has kind of as a standalone thing for you to make kind of chronological sense of later, uh, which is a very interesting way to approach the game. It reminds me more than anything of uh, The Witness in that you're given this kind of large land to you know, explore in the witness is a very kind of literal exploration as you are walking around a 3D map. Uh, whereas in this one, you are just kind of like almost flipping between pages in a book uh, to encounter kind of different um, different adventures. Uh, but it, it is very kind of nonlinear. If there's a puzzle that you're really not vibing with, then you can you can just kind of table it for now and then come back to it later. Uh, you know, there's really there there are very um, very few barriers that you know, force you to kind of bottleneck you into a very specific path until you get towards the end. And you just need to kind of like hoover up the remaining puzzles. Uh, so it's an interesting structure for a puzzle game. It does a a really good job of like, as you say, because of the, like obviously there is some, like, you know, certain events happen only after others have, have been mm-hmm. completed. So there is, there is, you know, some chronological order there, but at, at no point do I recall sort of reading something and thinking, well, hang on, this doesn't make any sense or, or reading something that retroactively contextualized something else. Do you know what I mean? I, and I don't know if it's a trick of, well, not a trick, but I don't, I don't know if it's like careful planning of the structure or if it's just the way it's like, obviously the, the writing is so sort of whimsical and, and, and abstract. So is it, is it that it's very cleverly structured so that you never read anything out of place? Or is it just that it, so much of it kind of washes over you initially that you wouldn't really notice. Do you know what I mean? I think the way that it's written, there are very few events that kind of lead to. I, yeah. I mean, each event is kind of a standalone thing. The only thing that I can think of that really, like I did encounter things later on that helped contextualize things from earlier or mm. like the, the biggest kind of series of events is this kind of mounting war between the four kingdoms yeah. that all have uh, accused their neighboring kingdoms of stealing an item that belongs to them, a treasured item. Uh, and, and so, you know, in that, there is kind of a larger storyline that um, that doesn't fold. You get to kind of better understand character motivations and understand kind of what's happening between the kingdoms. But most of the other encounters, even the ones that are really kind of like significant to the journey of the fool himself, they are very self-contained. I mean, and it's interesting as well, because I I mean, my knowledge of like tarot stuff is not amazing. My understanding of the fool is that it's isn't the fool sort of represents just kind of generally barreling through life and sort of not worrying too much about consequences or you know just kind of trusting in in the universe to <laughs> it's kind of kind of just going through life and experiencing things for the sake of it, and that's sort of embodied in. I mean, I suppose a lot of video game protagonists. You, that's essentially what you're doing, right? You you 
using like a character to, to sort of do things that you might not necessarily do in real life or you know sort of relatively consequence free decision making whereas here it's like yeah just like he just kind of goes around and a bunch of stuff happens to him and some of it he deals with immediately some of it some of it you might sort of park until later and whatever i don't know i, th- I felt like that was that was an intentional choice i think yeah i feel like it's intentionally like a I may pronounce this wrong, but I think a picaresque structure Mm -hmm. like Huckleberry Finn, I think is kind of or just there's a lot of the Pilgrim's Progress, I think, is one where it's like just a uh, Mm -hmm. a wacky guy going around the world. And and they do connect together, but in Mm -hmm. a not a complex way, like one one piece of information or one relationship might come up. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you were to take a message to the queen and then they go to the queen or something. But you don't need to read them in order to get the gist and. And I do think the structure here, I find it very interesting that even though I'm very close to finishing this thing and have completed the map, I still don't really understand about a third of the symbols on the map. <laughs> and I still don't necessarily understand all of the code stuff in the story. Right. And you don't need. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we are watching uh, Kami Toman stream this. And it was interesting <laughs> to see that kind of almost function as a red herring yeah. where he kind of seemed to feel like he needed to know what was going on and really... You just solve the things and then you put the map together and then you just try to figure it out then. So I ended up, I couldn't pay too much attention to what was going on until I'd finished it. And then kind of trying to read through and actually piece together what came from where, which bit of this follows on from which. And I, I suppose that's similar in the way that you end up putting the map together. So once once I had all the pieces there and actually figured out in which order it went. The story was relatively satisfying, if not still completely wacky and absurdist. <laughs> and I, I got real uh, vibes of something like Alice in Wonderland from it, partly because that also yeah. fit, has that dreamlike feeling. And I guess, I mean, it's not really the same thing, but both of, I mean, this is all heavily to do with like tarot cards and Alice in Wonderland has a whole cards theme that runs mm-hmm. through the whole thing with playing cards. It felt quite... Like I say, sort of abstract and and difficult to sink into at first, but actually it's, if you can get it, there's something quite satisfying underneath the surface. I am teaching right now in my intermediate class, we're doing level design around puzzles, we're using Portal 2, so I've been reading a lot of stuff about puzzles, Uh, and I seriously think I might give this game to my students next semester. Not to finish, but just like play the first hour or two and just notice the fact that these are clearly made by a human. Like it's 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 sort of like the Sudoku thing where expert Sudoku players immediately know when a Sudoku is machine produced and regard it with disdain. Right. Whereas <laughs> I look at it, I'm like, well, there's some numbers, uh, <laughs> but they hear the music. Right. Mm. And they they know when the Sudoku maker is having a clever little joke on them or whatever. <laughs> and yeah, I think I, I that's ultimately the most pleasant surprise here is not just structurally like what my student was talking about of you know all the parts kind of fit together in a very artistic way and the writing uh has some genuine literary merit but yeah i i i'm very lucky to have found a good example of just someone who knows to how to calibrate again like even even the the acrostic or whatever yeah because there might be times in this game where it throws up a word search and you think ah god it's not another word search but then there are other times where you say you've just done something that's taken you forever and was super difficult. And then you're like, oh, thank God, a word search. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like some of them are incredibly welcome. And the fact that it's not just, you know, like word searches or, or, you know, what you might consider easier puzzles will still appear sort of further into the game. It's not like, oh, well, it starts with word searches and then just gets harder and harder and harder. 
there's a there you know there's there's a sort of dynamism to it in that it's like yeah you've probably done a bunch of hard stuff here's another relatively easy one and it keeps it keeps things pacey doesn't it i think and there are yeah there there are some uh, shockingly complicated things right off the bat i think yeah because of my sort of uh maybe not uh, you know maybe he's making light of it calling it ocd but my my kind of compulsion when i open up the thing is to go down the first list that you get and the first one obviously is the sun map thing and i spent way too long with the whatever it is eight pieces of the map it initially gives you trying <laughs> to see if any of them all slotted together uh, when it was very obvious that there was very little point in doing that <laughs> and then the next one down i think is the wheel of fortune one which mm-hmm. is totally different from everything else oh my it's God. Yeah, I'm not even entirely sure what the best way to describe that is. It's a little bit like playing a game of, you know, blackjack or twenty one, but it's not as obvious as you know numbers that ascend. You have to remember because it plays it with a tarot card deck. You have to remember which tarot cards belong in the same whatever they are houses or um, groups with each other, and that's fairly obtuse. So I played through the whole thing. It just with I had to have a guide right next to me telling me which one's paired up because I'm not going to remember all of these things. There's way too many of them. <laughs> it's like those first two kind of bashing off against them, thinking this is really weird and abstract and I'm not convinced about this. And then scrolling down and the next one down was a word search. I was like, okay, well, I can do a word search. I, I know the names of countries. Like, I can pick that out. But even that, like trying to make it way more complicated than it's supposed to be because there's, there's a reasonably nice little hint system where... I think you you click about in one of the top of the screen things and it gives you some of the puzzles. Ones aren't particularly in depth and some of them are are sort of better than others. And it took me a while to realize that that was there. So I was going through this word search, not realizing that the only way the words go is left to right or up to down. Yeah, because it lets you you highlight in any direction, doesn't it? It sure does. You can also do like weird (laughs) snakes with them. So I was looking, trying to think, well, this Germany's probably going to be on this list. So I was looking for like a G and then going all eight compass directions (laughs) around it, thinking what if they go backwards and diagonally or what if it goes like in a C shape or something like that before I realised, oh yeah, they're all either side to side, uh, left to right or down to, or up to down. But um, yeah, it, I think the the discrepancy between some of the puzzles being like nice and easy and breezy and makes you feel relatively smart to be able to do them, and then some of the ones that require really like steady hand eye coordination or mm-hmm. um, really good mouse uh, preciseness, it, it's really bad to say that they felt like they were too difficult. But there was a point where some of them. I think go on for a little bit too long mm. and the um some of the the graphics on the screen. So I think you mentioned you also played this on the the Macintosh version which is the yeah. black and white grayscale. But at one point I looked at uh, some pictures that I think it said they were from the DOS version and it's quite colorful like it looks very very different mm-hmm. and I wondered for some of the puzzles where there's a lot of like weird background flashing and stuff going on. I think the worst culprit for me was the it's either the Hierophant or the High Priestess one where you have to click all of the numbers from 100 down That's, to one. Yeah, High Priestess. <sighs> Horrible. Man, the thing <laughs> just flashes in the background like a... It's it's like it's specifically designed to trigger some sort of photo sensitivity. <laughs> I was going to say, this should definitely carry... I mean, I know we did a spoiler yeah. warning at the start. We probably mm. should have done a photo sensitivity one as well. If you're planning on playing this, there's some really yeah, intense uh, visual stuff. 
Yeah, there's strobing in quite a few places on yeah. it. And even when it's not necessarily strobing, some of the backgrounds and things that they put on the um, the tiles, especially in some of the puzzles where there's you know lots and lots and lots of different tiles all together, and they put different different patterns of lines and thicknesses and stuff on them. Some of them are sort of looking at them thinking oh man this is it's like looking at a magic eye puzzle and your brain kind of goes slack watching yeah. <laughs> it. it it's an interesting uh, mixture between them yeah and we'll talk about the uh kind of specific puzzles a little bit down the road but i think as a kind of a general sense it does give a really interesting there's a, a very large diversity of types of puzzles that you'll encounter here from a lot of kind of repeating simpler puzzles to um some more complicated one-offs that you're only going to encounter you know one time throughout the adventure Let's talk a little bit about that creator, Cliff Johnson, who I have to wonder, is he in name the um, inspiration for Cave Johnson from Portal 2? Another puzzle game for much more, <laughs> you know, f- I didn't think of that, future. but quite possible. I've been hearing <laughs> his voice a lot, as you can imagine, playing student Portal yeah, 2 yeah. level. So. You know, Cliff's <laughs> in caves. Together. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I wonder if there huh. is somebody at Valve who was inspired by this early puzzle game and decided to reference him in a later puzzle game. But uh, anyways, he was a filmmaker uh, who specialized in kind of special effects development, also did uh, quite a bit of animation, had some experience in creating animatronics. And, um, you know, from the bios that I read about him, he sounded like kind of a the type of person who can figure out how to do anything very kind of crafty, very inventive. Uh, And so when when kind of challenged with doing something that nobody else knew how to do, he would find kind of a creative and efficient way to get it done. He eventually went into went to work on like kind of corporate training videos and stuff like that. Would use a little bit of his kind of animation background to uh, to uh, yeah to spice this up a little bit. You would have blown them away. Right. Yeah, absolutely. He he did a little bit of professional animation work for Southern California Edison, I got here, is one of them, mm-hmm. making a heating, air conditioning, and ventilation. Okay. <laughs> Did a little bit of animation for like Nickelodeon and stuff oh. as well, um, <laughs> points later on. I know that. Uh, but uh, yeah, did not play games himself, or seemingly very much afterwards either, despite being, you know, kind of one of those early-ish pioneers in this space. And doesn't even particularly like computer games that much. He got kind of pulled into a computer game project by a friend of his who was needing someone to kind of help uh, create puzzles for a game that he that um, that his friend was developing. And so, you know, he kind of got interested in working on that project, but it didn't really uh, didn't really do much after it was released. It didn't really move uh, very many yeah. units. It wasn't like a, a big um it wasn't very successful and yeah. it wasn't particularly good but i do want to point out it is weird it's called labyrinth of crete it's a text adventure and it's kind of got the same structure as something like it takes two like it's it's you mm. you're controlling two characters uh, jason hercules and all the puzzles i as far as i know i played like 10 minutes of it or like <laughs> you know do this thing over here and this person does this thing over here type stuff which is really formally innovative and i'm sure it was johnson's main interest in working on it uh it it, i don't think it's very playable but i think it's you know for a text adventure from 1982 that's that's very clever at least yeah we mentioned that this started off as a as a book that he gifted his friends um and he found that his friends very few of them actually completed the puzzles i think only like two of them ended up kind of 
working their way through the puzzles, even though he designed them to be very, you know, interesting and intricate, but more kind of like everyman skill level. Uh, you know, he wasn't trying to kind of impress people with how clever he could be. Um, but uh, he wanted to give them, you know, something to to chew on, but was ultimately solvable. But even so, he found that, you know, very few of the people that he ended up giving it to um, ended up completing it. Uh, this is coming off the uh, the tale of, and, and Jesse, you could probably give a little bit more background here, but he used to throw kind of elaborate parties that, if you think about kind of like the murder mystery parties or murder mystery dinners that uh, people host these days, it was it was that kind of thing where he would put together some sort of a interesting fictional uh, type of scenario that people would kind of walk from room to room and see these stories play out and um, you know almost like a kind of experimental theater theater type of thing um, but he just kind of loved creating these these immersive experiences for his friends and these really kind of creative uh, outlets that uh, that he could share with other people um, Jesse do you have more kind of information on I the- know he was really influenced you mentioned uh, the last of Sheila and he was a hugely influenced by Stephen Sondheim who was a famous along with being great composer of the 20th century a famous puzzle guy who like brought cryptic crosswords over here uh, eventually named Fool's Errand and uh, Johnson's later game three and three is like two of his all-time favorite puzzle games like really Sondheim loved that stuff. Uh, and through parties in the 70s, that sound pretty similar. And I don't know if that's where Johnson got the idea or it's just parallel evolution or something, you know, people read about. But yeah, I just get that, you know, and, and the thing is, is Sondheim in musical theater and this kind of stuff he's doing is definitely the impulse of someone who is a multi-talented artist who as you said, immersive experiences, right? Fool's Errand mm-hmm. is about as immersive an experience as you can get on a 1987 Macintosh where you're clicking on stuff. But he's really trying to regard every affordance of that machine, you know, and everything Everything matters. Every single aspect of it matters. It's a symphony. Uh, part of what inspired him to convert his, uh, his book that he'd written into a computer game is... Um, he had some kind of encounters with people who were gamers and found that they were more kind of receptive to the types of puzzles that he was interesting, interested in creating. And so he thought that even though his friends, you know, didn't end up giving the puzzle book as much, uh, you know, kind of attention as he would have liked, uh, perhaps there's this other market, essentially, of people who are kind of primed for this type of puzzle mm-hmm. specifically. Uh, he was given a book or a piece of software. I don't remember on uh, on programming in BASIC. and it kind of inspired him to uh, to learn a little bit more. Even though he wasn't that interested in computers, he went down to the uh, to the computer store and ended up purchasing purchasing himself uh, one of the early Macintosh computers because he found that the kind of point and click interface was a lot friendlier than the types of computers that he had had experience with in the past. And so he kind of got started coding in BASIC and teaching himself as he went. Um, eventually. Switching over to ZBasic, which is a more robust language. It's a less ludicrous thing to write a yeah. commercial game in. It's still borderline yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> not what you would want to do, but it's not <laughs> crazy. Whereas in regular basic, even though, and a saving grace was that he was able to write each of the puzzles as its own little basic program. Mm-hmm. So even though he had to ultimately rewrite all of that to make it, you know, one big program, uh, it probably, get, iterating on it probably helped a lot and being able to sort of 
tackle it at first is like, well, I'm just going to write these little hundred line programs that make this one puzzle work. And then we'll worry about putting it all together later. You know, it's one of the things that people say when they're going through gaming training or, or college or, you know, just trying to learn how to create their own indie games in the first place is that it's oftentimes you know, the best way to learn is to just do it, um, to get into the tools that are available to you and to uh, just start experimenting, teaching yourself, learning through your mistakes, um, you know, coding. Make, maybe your code is a little bit sloppy at the beginning and you end up getting better over time. Uh, but the, uh, the, the step that is never given it, it, when people are advising others when starting out is to release your experimentation as a commercial product. Mm-hmm. It was very, I, I would say, inadvisable, the position that he was in, completely just teaching himself how to code by creating a commercially viable product that he ended up you know, going on to sell. It went through very little QA, although it is pretty remarkably bug-free yeah. from <laughs> my experience. Not completely bug-free, but uh, but you know, it holds together a lot better than it reasonably should. But the fact that, you know, he just, he tested it with just like a handful of friends. He, he taught himself how to code while he was, you know, he built the plane while he was flying it essentially. And um, it it ended up being something that he, you know, traveled around and ended up selling to uh, Miles Computing and then later Electronic Arts, which, uh, which picked it up. But um, yeah, he ended up getting a publishing deal on his essentially just learning project. Let's talk a little bit about the story behind the game as well. Uh, so narratively, we talked a lot about the kind of fool's journey. Um, it's kind of an episodic adventure that he goes on uh, non-linearly. So you'll be approaching this in a, a very kind of non-linear way, although you will be given the option to print out the entire linear story in order um, right before the end of the game as you're trying to solve the sun's puzzle, because uh, the order can help you kind of arrange all of the puzzle pieces uh, in the in the correct order. So the puzzle pieces oftentimes have kind of very, even though they're small, they have identifiable bits that you'll remember from the story, whether they're, you know, rivers or a bridge that you would have crossed over or an archway that you would have passed under or village, or there's a uh, one piece with a, uh, with a kind of aimlessly windy road that is very <laughs> recognizable if you remember that chapter from the story. So little things like that, little visual clues that can give you a sense of uh, where in the narrative, narrative they belong. I think narratively, as, as we said already, it was uh, written very whimsically. Um, I appreciate that a lot of the humor comes from the characters all taking things very literally and, uh, you know, particularly the fool, but he's not the only one that operates in this kind of like ultra literal logic you know he meets somebody who's who's missing some information goes and sends him on kind of a quest like could you uh could you ask could you ask uh these other people you know where i'm supposed to go i don't remember what he was trying to find but you know he was told that you know those who precede him have the information that he's looking for but he's paralyzed because if he were to go and ask them if he were to move from that spot then they would no longer precede him which is kind of a <laughs> funny um turn of phrase and it's all little things like that you know little like being ultra literal uh, you know certain characters warning the fool off of things saying i wouldn't go in there if i were you and the fool saying well since you aren't me then maybe i must go in here that kind of thing so a lot of a uh, yeah a lot of very kind of clever turns of phrase that uh that turn into little humorous moments here and there um the only real like uh, the driving narrative of the game is that the 
the high priestess, who's essentially the villain throughout the game, has hidden the 14 treasures of the world. And we get the, the sense that she has transformed them into other objects, uh, more or less hiding them in plain sight. And uh, there are four kingdoms um, that are based on the various kingdoms within the tarot deck. Um, every character in every chapter is named after a tarot card, which is not, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with tarot, you know, encountering those symbols myself outside of just kind of peripherally picking them up through like persona games and stuff like that. But uh, it was very interesting to be um, a little bit more immersed in that imagery and, uh, and uh, kind of seeing a lot of uh, pieces, pieces click into place of words that I've heard used together. It's like, oh, that's where that came from. I still have no idea what a hierophant is, <laughs> but uh, one of these days I'll look it up. Um, but uh, anyways, uh, four kingdoms at war, each believing that the other kingdoms had stolen their most prized treasure and are refusing to um, to give it back, not realizing that the uh, high priestess had kind of disguised all of these treasures. Um, and so they're all kind of going going to war over a misunderstanding, essentially. And the, the fool just kind of finds himself walking through the middle of it, sometimes having an effect, sometimes not. Uh, a little bit of a Mr. Magoo character almost, where, you know, he's his presence is uh, sometimes catalyzing the events of the story, and sometimes he's just kind of observing things as they happen around him. Uh, I, I guess narratively, are there any chapters or any kind of arcs that uh, particularly stood out to you? It's it's to me it, it was all I don't know all sort of blurred in into one. Like I I mean obviously this is partly my fault for not finishing it, but I was I was very much just sort of going with it and kind of taking things in, but also trying not to like I you know I was like making notes and stuff, and then after sort of three or four hours, just being like this is nonsense, like. <laughs> you know, like like all the um, you know, the phrases or the you know the words they're in like the sort of the the chunky font, and you're like, right, this is going to be relevant. So I've got like this sheet of A4 in front of me where I've written like, yes, red urn era sip top KD no shit, and it's just like a whole sheet of A4 of that stuff. So that was <laughs> that was kind of my experience was just sort of breezing through it and like th- like thinking, thinking, oh, I'm going to write these what I think are important clues down. Um, but unfortunately for me, it never never fully came together. Yeah, there's an element here where I found a lot of the little story beats are absurdist enough that it's very difficult for the details to stick out because you have the fool talking to somebody and then they'll just spout some nonsense words or they'll be talking about the fact that they're trying to plant coins in the ground expecting ivy to grow out of them or something. <laughs> and even that, I think I've gotten two or three different things all convoluted in my head and made up something else. So because there wasn't like the <laughs> cohesion of reality to it, I find it very difficult to actually specifically remember anything. Mm. Yeah, it's I read through the whole thing, but I was definitely reading for clues at that point, not reading mm-hmm, yeah. for... And I, I got a sense, I kind of want to go back because I do, again, think this is the kind of thing that's best not binge. The 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 weird thing about this game in the relationship between the... Ryan brought up The Witness, which is, I think, an interesting comparison, yeah. right? Because there's a couple... Like, just to be absolutely clear to people, this is not a game... Like, a point-click adventure game is one where, like, oh, you got to open this door, so you got to find the rat that'll get you the key or whatever, right? Like, the, the puzzles are diegetic in that sense. Mm. And then you can have another type of game where the puzzles are, like, completely not diegetic, or it's just like, you know, 
like a, a bad edutainment game. Like you're going to fight the aliens, you answer some math questions, and if you get them, you get the aliens, whatever, right? Whereas this kind of like the witness is in this in-between point where the witness puzzles, I mean, they're literally diegetic in that you're in that world, right? But a lot of them are sort of these line puzzles that, that build up their own language and develop on each other. And I think another point of comparison here is, is Johnson's very good at not having you do the harder versions of puzzles until you've done the easier versions. Yeah. And that is part of how all the, you know, unlocks work. Whereas, yeah, whereas the witness sort of forces you, not force you, but it's, yeah, you can stumble upon a harder version of a puzzle and it's up to you to figure out that actually you're not supposed to be able to do it yet. Mm-mm. Right. Yeah. But they share this same, like, these puzzles aren't diegetic in the sense of I am doing a thing in this world, there's a problem in the world I am solving. Yeah. And that is the puzzle. But they're very thematically linked. But the thematic link always comes after you solve it, right? Yeah. And it's interesting to me because it seems like the the commonsensical decision would have been that the thing that happens in the story also helps you solve the puzzle you're working on. Uh, but it absolutely does not. And it took and and I think he knows more than I do about puzzle design. And, and I kind of see why he did it this way. But it wrong footed me for the first hour or two of just like, OK, these don't seem to I'm not getting anything from this. Mm. And right. And then nonsense things like, you know, you solve it and it's the word, you know, new, new. And the person just kind of says that in a nonsense way. But. There's probably like I trust him. That's the thing is I haven't absolutely finished this. And even after I do, I think I'd have to re- get out my dot matrix printer and uh, print out the whole thing off the <laughs> Mac and uh, read it. Because I think, again, he's just like an actual artist. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like the next person uh, I'm on for is Jeff Minter. And it's a very funny like those are my two shows because they're two like those guys are just actual artists. <laughs> like they do their thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they have a thing they do and they will always do that thing. And their personality will come through no matter what. And if you like that thing, great. And if you don't, great. But yeah, I, I just because I don't get it. I mean, I listen to a lot of jazz and I don't get that either. <laughs> but I can tell when people know what they're doing. And this guy, he knows what he's doing, even if I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say another game that this kind of reminds me of is Professor Layton in a way. I was you'll yeah. be going on this kind of narrative adventure and then people will present you with puzzles, except the way that I would like separate this game from Layton is that in Layton the puzzles that they give you are usually kind of like, at least in the set decoration, <laughs> solving a problem that they would be having in that space. Whereas oftentimes, like in this game, sometimes the puzzles were related to the things that you had just encountered in the story. And sometimes the puzzles will be more kind of queuing you up for what's happening next, mm. as you said, unrelated to what happened before. And so there's a little bit of like kind of forward and backwards miscontinuity, but it's interesting. It kind of keeps you on your toes rather than being like, as straightforward of an experience as a Professor Layton. Yeah, I was because uh, I, I was thinking about Professor Layton when I was playing this, largely because I, I hadn't tried to play a Professor Layton game for a while. I loved the the first one back in the day, um, and then tried to play the one on is it on Apple Arcade? It's not Professor Layton; mm-hmm. it's like his niece or something. Um, and, and I tried to play that, and it's like way too interested in like telling the story rather than giving you puzzles to solve. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, Fool's Errand strikes a much better balance of like, like you could not even read a lot of it for a while, right? You could just click through the chapters. Yeah. Oh good. There's a question mark. Give me a puzzle and not really, you know, take any interest in the actual words on the screen if you wanted to, which I found really refreshing. Like I was reading it, but it wasn't, 
it wasn't like right you do you did you know one word search here's a five minute cutscene like <laughs> like the pacing of it was was really refreshing versus yeah playing that recent uh, Layton game. Let's talk about those puzzles. Mm. There are a number of reoccurring puzzles that you'll encounter multiple times throughout the game. Um, sometimes in different configurations with different modifiers. Sometimes as very similar recreations of what you've experienced before. Um, I have a list of types of puzzles here. I don't know if I got everything that reoccurs throughout the game, but uh, there are various crossword puzzles. And when I say this, I don't mean the kind of New York Times, you know, big crossword grids. Usually there'll just be like one or two lines that intersect, or maybe uh, maybe it kind of builds into a more complex pattern as you solve more and more words. But it's uh, it's not the kind of thing where they give you all the clues and then all the boxes up front and you have to, you know, it's usually like one or two words that you're figuring out with maybe a common letter between them, sometimes even you know, switching letters around rather than typing them in yourself. Um, so there's a lot of kind of diversity in this puzzle group. The, it, it's sort of the amphibious stage between jumble and crossword puzzle mm-hmm. uh, where you're, it's more unscrambling letters a lot of the time, uh, but you are... Then linking them together to other ones and then then like new because it's a computer, they can hide it and have new things appear. And one thing I liked about those was that and again, this is kind of part of that conversation is that some of the later ones, like new lines would appear where you didn't expect them like, oh, my God, it keeps going from here. But those were actually maybe easier because you had more things it was connecting with. So there was kind of like, yeah. it wasn't frustrating. It was like, oh, okay. Like I can, uh, but again, a very carefully calibrated sense of frustration for the player mm. there. Yeah. And some of those, the ones where they do lead on from each other, uh, you have to get the previous answers correct first. So this, I think one of the last crosswords that I did that actually felt more like a crossword than anything else starts off with just a cross in the middle, gives you the two clues, and then it mm-hmm. builds out from around it. And by the time mm-hmm. you get to the the latest ones in it, uh, you've got it, it will be the you know the plus sign between in the middle of a square that you've already done. So you've already got the first and the last letter for each one. Then you know there's a common one in the middle. So you're only really having to work out two separate letters from each other. Overall, just like the dial, the brute force dial. Not saying he always gets it right. But you can see for the most part that like there's definitely things I've done in this game where I applied a little brute force, but I like narrowed it down, like even putting together the map. There's like, well, it's one of these five things or I know it's got to be kind of like this. So I'll brute force those that subset of pieces. But I never, you know, just did things purely by clicking randomly and hoping. Yeah. So those are crossword puzzles. There are jigsaw puzzles as well. These are picture jigsaws usually just uh, rectangular pieces rather than more kind of intricately Mm. shaped pieces. These are a little challenging in black and white just due to sometimes a, sometimes it's hard to tell like what, um, what shapes are supposed to be or yeah, what the different shapes are supposed to be when you're looking at a piece in isolation, which I guess is any puzzle, but I, th- I found that eventually these came together pretty quickly for me. Yeah, um, it was pretty easy to be able to kind of like snap together at least a couple pieces, and then once two or three were connected, you got a pretty good sense of spatially where they were supposed to land. Um, these were really enjoyable. I I've, yeah. I like these a lot. I didn't really have any any problem with uh, with these ones. Yeah, these were I'd really like these. They were. I mean, there's two mm. two things um, in terms of you know quality of life that <laughs> you know once you realize how they work, they they really help. The fact that for most of them, it's like there's at least one border is like just filled in with like a texture or a color. And that 
usually gives you enough to, to start. And then also the fact that you can select like a block of pieces. It's not just what, you know, one tile at a time. So if you've kind of, you can, you might have a space where you can see there's a few tiles that go together, but you're not sure where they go in the grand scheme of things, but like put them together anyway, because once you have figured out where to place them, you can select like, you know, six blocks in one go and, and move the lot of them, which again, just little things that he didn't need to put in, but just make it that bit more accessible and less frustrating. There's there's like a nice other kind of accessibility aspect of these where I can't remember exactly how many of them are. There's probably about five or six, and I'd say at least half of them, if not more, have also got some sort of block text on them yeah. in various points. So that that's always like quite a decent uh, clue that you can get like an entire corner of it because mm-hmm. they have a big word yeah, written yeah. over it. Uh, there's kind of like an unpleasant flip side of that where they also do things like they'll put reflections or shadows or something <laughs> on the picture that then give you the opposite kind of distorted effect. So yeah. that can be like an extra hurdle. Yeah, there's, there's a few, uh, there's certainly one I can think of where there's like a series of pillars. But again, he's been careful to make sure that like you, you can't line up like a bit of one pillar with a bit of another pillar because they don't quite right. sit in the same position on the tiles, yeah. you know? One thing that Jigsaw's make me think about in general is as you're saying there's like this is kind of open world game design within the puzzles as well where in some sense you know i don't know what good open world game design is but i know the bad version is either it's completely linear or people go in whatever direction they want and they have no idea what's going on right there's there's somewhere in the middle you're guiding people to some extent mm-hmm. but giving them some freedom and even and this is the thing that blows me away about this game and reading about puzzle design of it as such a good example of someone doing those little subtle things that give you a direction where probably 75% of people start this puzzle more or less the same way. 75% save the same tough pillar stuff for last after they got everything else, etc. But there's still wiggle room and not everyone does it in this entirely linear pattern that he's sort of leading you down completely. I just I want to make sure to emphasize this because I feel like it is the kind of thing that is difficult to talk about because it is the, the subtle craftsmanship of someone, you know, the, the muscle memory of a real puzzle maker, basically, uh, and expresses itself in like a lot of little ways like you're talking about here. The next type of puzzle are the polyominoes that we mentioned earlier. Uh, I referred to them as word jigsaws as I was playing through the game <laughs> because they are um, these are more kind of traditional jigsaw type of, you know, as the previous picture jigsaws were all kind of rectangles. These are kind of weird shapes that interlock and hook around each other, and then they'll have letters printed on them that eventually form messages. But you can uh, you can kind of approach them from both directions, either solving them just by you know connecting the shapes and seeing what resulting messages come from that, or by um, using the you know, using letter frequencies and, and the messages that you would expect to see as a um, as kind of an anchor to help guide your your puzzle construction. Yeah, I, I tended to find these to be pretty manageable as well, and um, I enjoyed the polyominoes. Yeah, and I think once again the fact that it gives you you know one piece already in place that cannot be moved, um, which I think always has a letter on it as well. So even though you don't know the phrase you're looking for, that's, again, it's just a good foot in the door so that you're not just completely lost. Yeah, and you can, and it has sub-goals, even more than the Jigsaw ones. You can get a word together. Yeah. Mm. Be like, okay, I'm pretty sure that's right. <laughs> and, and right, like, that's the impressive thing is that puzzles are, I mean, you guys aren't right puzzle guys, right? I'm not. <laughs> like, 
there are a lot of bad puzzles and I don't like your average puzzle uh, because they're very binary and brittle. Yeah. Right. And and it is like and, and and it is often an attempt by the puzzle maker to show, you know, we were talking earlier how the word searches didn't have backwards or diagonal or, up, you know, down to mm-hmm. up. And that's the kind of restraint you see from someone who knows what they're doing that you would not see from your average person being like, well, if I'm going to put this in here, it should it should be trivial. You know, I'll, I'll do it backwards. Uh, and yeah, almost all these puzzles have some sort of sub goal where, you know, you're getting closer and you get mm. some satisfaction on the way, even if it's a binary puzzle in one sense. There's that conversation going on. Encouragement. Mm. You're getting encouragement. My very favorite kind of repeating puzzle is the next one, the decryption or cipher puzzles, Mm. in which you are given a kind of jumbled phrase. The entire sentence is written out, but all in jumbled letters. And uh, gosh, I really enjoyed (laughs) doing these throughout the game. Um, In all of the puzzles, but one, they give you like um, like a cipher phrase at the bottom. They'll give you kind of a number of letters that equal a couple of words that are like regular English words. And so you can do kind of a one-for-one replacement of, uh, and and the way that this works in-game is really nice because if T equals Z, then you can click on any T in the entire sentence, swap in a Z, and then it'll swap them throughout the entire sentence automatically. And so it kind of adjusts as it goes. It's really friendly. You don't have to like keep track of what have I switched? What have I not in your mind? And the, and the fact that it like it, cha- it changes it in the yeah the sort of the little translation thing at the bottom as well, yeah, yeah. so you know what again you know what you've fixed. And again, it it's just a, a brilliant way of giving you a leg up and making like you initially look at it like oh okay well I just find those letters and replace them and then surely that's it. And then it's not like it's again it's enough to give you a leg up and then you're kind of looking at it like right there's a few words i can sort of figure out from here you change those letters that then give you know sort of gives you a bit of a lead on some of the larger words yeah i, I found these really elegant yeah you can really su- you can suss out really quickly the single letter words have to be either either yeah. um, i or a um you can generally get you know a good guess as to what a two letter word would be whether it's of or we or us or you know there's a, kind of a smaller handful of letter mm-hmm. of uh words uh three letter words especially if you have like an h in place then you can start to find the thes and stuff like that um but really really enjoyable and there's one point in the game where it doesn't give you that kind of anchor phrase and i did find that to be pretty challenging mm-hmm. actually um you really just have to kind of go off of letter frequency and you know generally where you would expect to see vowels versus consonants and certain lengths of words yeah. and stuff like that and so you know really really quite challenging but at by that point it had done enough to kind of prepare you for the challenge and really like i i would love to <laughs> to do more of these like i've kind of <laughs> want to do a quick you know steam search to see what other kind of like cipher it, because you know it all felt very manageable it all felt very like approachable at an appropriate difficulty level I, which <laughs> I could see this type of puzzle i was gonna say out of hand really I'm, quickly i'm kind of amazed we got this far without mentioning wordle actually and i was just thinking like yeah if you wanted to mm. do like yeah if you wanted to do this as like a, a very accessible like here's one a day you play it on your phone you know that this is the the model i would tell you to use like because as you say there's just all those little quality of life um tweaks um i think would make it very sort of instantly like people would get it very quickly yeah i mean i these used to appear in puzzle game books when i was a kid 
and Games Magazine, which is a very big influence on the fool's errand, mm -hmm. and uh, as cryptograms, but they would never have the mm -hmm. the key phrase on the bottom. Mm -hmm. So and and uh, the last one in this one, the devil, right, is like the final boss one where they don't give that to you, and it's a rather large one. Yeah, this is much better being like I would do the easier ones of those in the puzzle books, but they were kind of frustrating, right? You're entirely solving them off those, you know, one or two letter words giving you the the crack in, but. What I found, yeah, I mean, as a difficulty ramp, this is great. And what's especially fascinating to me in design terms is that the replacement of, you know, these jumble of letters equals uh, this phrase uh, that they give on most of them is entirely busy work, yeah. right? There's no need for it, you to do that. It could give it where it just says that phrase is that phrase, mm. but it trains you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. It is very, yeah, again, going back to the witness, it's it's so much a part of like this pedagogy to lead you to this difficult task, but give you the, you know, make you feel ready for mm. it. Yeah, definitely. Next type are word square puzzles. Uh, I don't know if there's a more clever name for that, but uh, they're kind of three by three grids, each with a letter. And the objective is to spell a word in every row and in every column going from left to right and from top to bottom. These feel very approachable, but um, for some reason, they always kind of like took me longer than I expected that they would. Like, I, I yeah. always kind of had a I, I found yeah. trouble with so these. hard. I, <laughs> and as yeah. you say, you approach it and you're like, oh, well, it looks so simple. Yeah, like how many three letter <laughs> words can there be? Right. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's it's only once I think the, the first one you come across that you start thinking, well, T can't be in the middle of any of these right. words i think so that has to go in a corner and then that's that was kind of the way in but god yeah this the, the these took me forever I really struggled with these but even when you find like the letter that's supposed to be at the beginning of the word like you don't know whether that word is supposed to be in the top row or the bottom row yeah. and that can kind of mix things up along mm, the way yeah. and so you're doing a lot of swapping of letters and then losing the words that you previously had yeah uh, as you kind of get sloppy and, <laughs> and swapping and again you know the the character in the middle is is fixed and thank god because imagine mm. if it wasn't <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah I, I struggled with these I think there was at least one point where I was pretty sure I had three words that were like legal words that it didn't recognize. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there is at least one technically correct solution that it doesn't honor. But uh, for the most part, these all seem very fair. I was going to say, Anyways. is this a case of because I, ne I never I never thought to check if there were multiple solutions for these. And if s there's I, two, because okay. they mirror, but that's. Kind of just rotating. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. I think you have to get the same nine words in them. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there's no. It's not like. Altogether. Yeah. It's not logically checking if it's correct. It just knows there are certain correct layouts. Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Uh, the next type is the word search, which we have talked about already. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I would say a word search is barely a puzzle. <laughs> it, it's kind of like it's the busy work that a substitute teacher will give to a class full of students <laughs> to get them to be quiet for half an hour. I don't feel like my brain has been particularly stretched in any way, but. Uh, I don't know. I don't mind them being in here uh, either. Yeah, I, I felt like that was the purpose of them, was to be just like, here you yeah. go, here's an easy one. Just <laughs> yeah, it eases you in yeah. before some of the more horrible ones. Yeah. Um, obviously also <laughs> tripped up by some American spellings and, you know, eggplant and stuff. Um, but, you know, <laughs> other than that. Fine. Yugoslavia. Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, there's some old uh, country names <laughs> oh, as well. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the things... It's that uh, the puzzles, uh, they all have different themes. Mm. Uh, one of them is based on birds. One of them is based on vegetables. One is based on countries, which um, countries is interesting because of how often political borders change. Mm. There are some countries 
that are listed in the word search that no longer exist. <laughs> or I believe there were countries that did not exist simultaneously to one another, right. uh, which is kind of interesting as well. But uh, it was one of those things where it's like, you could kind of label that as being like a uh, an educational element, almost almost like a uh, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego type of puzzle. <laughs> and maybe that's a good kind of back of the box check mark. But um, for some reason, any story that takes place in a fantasy world should not be referencing like real world countries. I, it takes me out of the I know what you mean a little bit. Not that yeah, not that it's yeah. terribly dense already. <laughs> no, it is true that the the countries one especially the birds I can accept, the vegetables I can accept, mm. but that. Well, if you know your birds, I mean, what the hell is a bobo link? I've never yeah, heard of that I, before. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it just looked like a word that wasn't random letters <laughs> smashed together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was, I, was, I was saying just before we recorded, yeah, there was, I mean, there, there was stuff like that, but then there were also times where I just forgot what a sardine was. And I was kind of just, I, I, I literally Googled like types of fish. And it <laughs> took me a while. <laughs> Next type of puzzle are formula puzzles, I'll call them. There will generally be a series of buttons on the bottom of the screen that are kind of toggled on and off. Sometimes they are letters in a phrase. Sometimes they are just numbered buttons. And as you toggle the buttons on and off, they will affect either a phrase that is being added to or subtracted from by um, by some invisible metric that each button kind of operates formulaically in a similar way, but uh, can mm. be difficult to suss out while you're doing it. And sometimes it is like a visual puzzle that is being um, kind of constructed and deconstructed from triangles and rectangles and stuff. It is a very particular sequence of buttons that must be pressed, oftentimes in a very particular order to get the desired result. And I, um, these were pretty much like straight to the walkthrough. <laughs> I was going to say, is, moments for me. Yeah, is there a clever way of doing these? Because I just had to kind of brute force them. Just trial and error. I mean, if you're a genius, like there are, must be like ways of determining like we're getting closer to an English language <laughs> sentence yeah. by if you really understood what each of them did. I think it would be a little bit more approachable if you knew the goal that you were trying to get to as well. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. it feels mm-hmm. like a lot of kind of groping around in the darkness. Yeah. I think the first one of these that I did must have been in an early, you know, very early uh accessible scroll piece and it was the phrase was something quite simple it was just like we are the last who care or something like that Mm. and it starts off with like ast in the middle and you've got the six buttons and you have to press them in the right order but it it, when it starts adding the letters onto each end for some reason that one just kind of worked for me it might have even been where they only had four buttons so it's you know there's only however many combinations in general only something like 15 combinations in general but by the time you get to the end of these uh, they've got seven or eight buttons, and I just found them completely impossible. And the phrases and the adding the letters, like you get one wrong, and it just the whole thing just looks like utter nonsense. Yeah, there was the one um, where you're just trying to decipher. It. Yeah, it's like one of the more visual ones where it's just like three characters you're trying to find. Mm-hmm. That one I managed. That, that, that one wasn't too bad, just because oh, the- that was like. Okay, I, these buttons mess with this third of the screen. These buttons mess with this third of the screen. And I was able to kind of like, yeah. right, so just play with these buttons for now until something makes sense and then mm. move on to the... Like, I was able to sort of do it that way, but it was still a lot of trial and error. But then they're, they're abstract as well, yeah. and they make the... Uh, there's a lot in there that throws you off. I started doing one of those ones, and I was convinced that the first letter was going to be an H mm-hmm. because no matter what I did, it looked like it had the you know, the down and then the the middle bit from the the first age. Mm -hmm. And by the time I actually 
got it by going and cheating for it. It wasn't an H at all. It was something completely different. <laughs> yeah, because all you... the pieces kind of have that jagged look to them, and they make H's and R's and A's well, and it. M's. Yeah, because you're kind of thinking very nicely. Yeah, you're like, well, how how much are these supposed to look like? You know, clean normal letters, or are they supposed to look a bit weird? Like, am I yeah, like am I looking at like an abstract shape that's kind of an H, but I'm not sure. But yeah, but then once you do find one, it's like, oh no, that's clearly an A or or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I had a very bifurcated reaction where I found the the three letter picture ones fun and not easy, mm-hmm. but not hard at all, and like just kind of did them by instinct mm-hmm. and yeah, figured out one third of the screen, da da da, and had that sub goal thing of like, okay, I got this chunk done and. Totally satisfying. Uh, the word Formula Ones, I cheated. I just gave up. <laughs> I wrote down, yeah. I figured out every rule on the easiest one, wrote them all down, tried to figure out how it would work, gave up, looked just at the answer in the sense of what phrase am I trying to make, looked back at the rules, tried playing with the buttons, thinking through the rules, make that phrase, gave up. Just from then on, just hit the buttons in the order they told me. <laughs> yeah. There might be some clever way, but I don't see it. They get considerably harder as well, because I think the one that I mentioned where the phrase ended up being, I think it was We Are The Last Who Care, yeah, uh, where it's only got a few buttons, and each one, it just added a couple of letters, gave you a few in the middle, and added a couple onto each end, so you needed to just get the, if it was A-S-T in there, you needed to get the one that added an A to the, sorry, an L to the beginning of it. But by the time, the last one I did, I think the the it had eight buttons on it, and the puzzle, the <laughs> yeah. solution ended up being 16-16 <laughs> with a hyphen in the middle, and it just, mm-hmm. it, it also, some of the buttons took things away from it. So I just, I mashed all of them, and I ended up with what looked like about 15 X's all in a row. <laughs> so there's only supposed to be two X's in this puzzle. Where are these all coming from? Well, because, you know, as you were talking about, with a, um, with a four-button layout, there are 24 possible solutions, but as you get to eight buttons, you know, the number of solutions becomes eight times sevens times six times five times yeah. four and all the way down. Mm. And it's like, that's kind of an astronomical, like w- these are not brute forcible mm. <laughs> I mean, mm. by any reasonable metric. But the problem is uh, they're also not chunkable, right? Like the ones yeah. Uh, yeah. with the, with the characters have like 15 buttons or something. I'm actually, I just opened up one. Let me see. Uh, yeah, 16 each buttons. Button just has two configurations. Just right. has like an on and an off. Yeah. Right. But at 16, that's still a few million possibilities. <laughs> uh, but like you can chunk it by being like, okay, I got that letter. I'm pretty sure that's mm-hmm. a letter. With the yeah. word formula ones, it's like a maze where you can be like, you literally see the exit right there and you know you are as far from that exit as you could possibly be because, you know, mm. that's how the sadism of a maze works <laughs> is, you know, that it's, it's a twisty passage. And yeah, I just don't, I don't see the way in. It was it was unique among these puzzles where I'm like, I just don't see how you break off a piece of this and get started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of mazes, there are also a number of labyrinth puzzles throughout the game. And um, these, instead of just being kind of straight up mazes, were uh, given interesting modifiers in that um, there would usually be... There would be like invisible walls that you wouldn't uncover until you kind of butted up against them. Um, sometimes there would also be invisible teleporters, which I believe teleported you to random places. Not entirely random because it wouldn't ever teleport you right next to the exit. Yeah. But um, I, I didn't determine any formula as to like which teleporters to approach if I wanted to get to another 
portion of the maze, which on one of those mazes, I believe you do have to teleport to at least one corner of it to get to the ending path. But those are a little bit trial and error, just trying to uncover the indivisible walls and the invisible teleporters as you go. And then they they fill in and make the journey, your next journey, a little bit easier. But uh, yeah, trial and error along the way. Um, there are there's at least one maze that is a little bit more narrative in its construction as you're kind of like moving around almost like a like a classic um a kind of grid based adventure game where you know you'll you'll encounter various characters and you have to find items throughout the maze and find your way back to the characters to give them the item that they want and then they'll give you a key that opens a hidden door and stuff like that so you know interesting modifications they aren't just straight mazes but um usually it's it's something uh a little bit more of a brain twister yeah like i so i I did the the wandering winds one and the one with the trapdoor and the trapdoors and the sort of secret invisible walls (laughs) oh not invisible sorry they're visible but you can pass through them I don't I can't say I enjoyed them but obviously it's it's very clearly like like he's obviously okay so he's done like word searches and stuff but in this instance he was like I'm, like a maze is not enough on its own right he's he's just tried to find a, a series of ways of making them more interesting and I can't you know I can't criticize him for that even if I didn't particularly enjoy <laughs> the end result yeah, I, I kind of feel the same way. I think I I remember at least three different mazes mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure I did them all without having to look anything Mm. up but they were just ridiculous amounts of trial and error the teleporting one just getting sent back to the sort of the middle bottom of the screen over and over and over trying to figure out the the one path because the thing with the teleporters is they do get marked on the map but only after you go into them so right uh you will eventually just if you just keep playing it for long enough you will eventually brute force to the point where you can see all of the walls and you can see all the teleporters yeah and you can just slowly get through it by yeah well just trial and error but it took me a long time to do it i was trying to think like is there a is there a way to to do that kind of thing so yeah you're making your way through a maze but like the map is incomplete and there are there are things in the maze that will trip you up and re you know reset you or whatever is there a way of doing that in a way that you can sort of figure out where the pitfalls might be like in a minesweeper sort of way, right? Like there are there are clues that if you are smart, you can sort of deduce where they might be rather than it just being like, ha-ha, you happened to land on this square and there was no way you could have known that it was going to teleport you to the start again. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't have minded this one if the teleporters were consistent and where yes. they sent you because then that mm-hmm. becomes another element of the puzzle. Yeah, like something you can learn. Like, oh, well, hazard. Yeah, like if this square t- always teleports me to this place, I know that, yeah, like if yeah, I'm forced yeah. to restart, then I know I can go here, and that's essentially a shortcut. And yeah, that that would have been cool. But yeah, as, as you say, as far as I can tell, it's totally random. Although, yeah, not not totally random because it will never send you right to the end. I think some of them are random. Okay, because I, I figured out. I don't know. This was again a place where I felt like I didn't love it, but I could really feel the difference between a well calibrated puzzle by a guy who knows how to make puzzles mm-hmm. and just some dumbass making a maze uh where like we watched Kami do this on stream and and he was frustrated but like he got through it in more or less the same way i did with about the same amount of like it's a combination of brute force and just pavlovian conditioning (laughs) like i figured out a thing that i would do that seemed to work 
and mm. would get me to a certain place where I would then get towards the end, then start having that conversation of like, OK, there, I could step here or here, which is the one which you would make the, the mm. bomb, essentially mm. uh, step on the bomb, get sent back, yeah. do the thing that seems to mostly work again. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, like again, I, I don't love this as a concept, but I was impressed by how Kami went through more or less the same narrative arc I yeah. did, even though it felt like he was totally flailing. <laughs> and finally, the last reoccurring puzzle that I noted down here are f- hidden phrase puzzles, which are a little bit cheeky, they, they tend to be. Mm-hmm. They'll give you like a number of boxes that kind of relate to like a phrase that you're supposed to figure out, and then there will often be on-screen clues as to, you know, what phrase you're supposed to fill in. Um, sometimes there's a, uh, there's one where there's each, each box has like a stock of ivy growing from it, mm. each with a number of letters that you could choose from for that, uh, for that particular box. And then you can kind of get a sense of like, okay, what, what letters form uh, or what combinations of all of these form, you know, sentences that I can use or uh, my, f- <laughs> my favorite one, which is again, kind of hardly a puzzle and more of just like an outside of the box thinking exercise is like mousing over various parts of the screen. The letters will just start appearing underneath your mouse. And so (laughs) it'll just give you the answer, but it's like the puzzle is knowing to look in the first place, Mm, yeah, (laughs) which is like kind of audacious for a puzzle game to create a puzzle that is so like antithetical to what you think it's asking you to do. But uh, I, I don't know. I really love it. I thought it was very creative. I, yeah, I liked these. Um, the one I, I didn't dislike it. I was just bad at it. Um, the one where you just you're looking for the absent letters rather than the ones that are oh, there. Yeah. Just because they mm. were all obviously the, the misdirection there is there's all these letters on the screen and they're all different fonts and textures and stuff. And I'm kind of looking at them like right, there's going to be like three characters that are the same texture or the same font or the same mm. size and that's mm-hmm. how. And, that, and then yeah, I, I ended up having to look up the solution when I read it. I was like, oh. For God's sake. <laughs> I had the exact same experience. I was I was saying, oh, yeah, this is like set. Yeah, yeah. This is like that card game mm-hmm. set. And I just have to figure out mm-hmm. the rule. And with the one where you have the, uh, the the letters appear when your arrow's in the right place, Kami was doing that one trying to solve it and had his arrow make the letters appear and did not notice. <laughs> and I just wanted to scream. But, you know, there's nothing you can do. And finally, there are some uh, notable one-off puzzles. There are a bunch of one-off puzzles, and we're not going to get to all of them, but there are a few that I wanted to pick out and spend a little bit more time with going through individually, Uh, the most notable of which is the puzzle that you get in the Wheel of Fortune portion of the game. Um, That is the Wheel of Fortune card in a tarot deck not related to the uh, game show, and the (laughs) game plays nothing like that, but essentially it is a... A game of cards versus an old man that kind of plays in a poker adjacent style. And uh, to me, this was the standout puzzle for the entire game. Um, I found it really, really enjoyable to, uh, you know, I, my experience going into it was I don't like card games. I don't like having to like figure out obscure rule sets. <laughs> this is going to be a nightmare. Um, I tried brute forcing and just clicking around a couple of times because I was like, I'm not going to enjoy this. But once <laughs> I actually like sat down and like started figuring out what the game was, it it was really very approachable and um, it, it will throw you for a loop every once in a while. But like it's it's all very learnable and it's all very attainable. The rule sets are very manageable, even though it looks kind of intimidating up front. But essentially you are presented with three or four cards that are kind of in the in the center of the screen that both characters have access to and then each 
character, you versus the old man who is just AI computer, have two cards of your own. Uh, one is viewable to, to both of you. So each, char- each person has one, one flipped up card and one secret card. And uh, essentially, you have, to, um, you have to choose one of the cards in the center of the screen uh, to, complete a, uh, to complete a hand, essentially. And each hand is comprised of, um, they're kind of like a, like a house. I think John referred to them earlier as houses. Like they'll, they'll kind of go together. You know, if you pick the high priestess, then that will pair with, you know, vari- the devil or death for the kind of evil hand. <laughs> and then it'll pair with, uh, you know, other royalty, like the, the king and queen for like a royalty hand, you know, various hands that they might belong to. And um, and those hands have their own ranking that you have to figure yeah. out. Through, they each have point values. Notes. The one who has the highest point value is given the points at the end of the round. If neither is able to construct a hand from the cards that are given and the cards that are in their hand currently, then um, it is the highest ranked card that ends up winning that round. And so essentially, it's a matter of like, at first, you have no idea what's what. You're just kind of clicking around and seeing what happens. But um, as you're constructing it, take note of what each hand was called, how many points it awarded whoever won, and what cards were included. You know, there will be four or five cards in each family, so to speak. And it's just kind of a matter of like filling in those missing pieces of information. I had my like Excel document (laughs) on the other screen as I was kind of filling up point values and which cards belong to which and what each of the families were called. And um, it was very, very enjoyable. I found in the end, just uh, eventually kind of like, even once I had all the information and it was still a very close game against the old man because you can only go so far to really account for like what his hidden card might be. Mm. Uh, but um, yeah, gosh, I found it really enjoyable. It's, it's really good, isn't it? It's I, I did struggle with it. Um, obviously, as I say, because I, I realized I was using a walkthrough through a different version that actually had some slightly different rules. That didn't help. But also, yeah, like the the old man's like AI is one hundred percent infallible. Like it will he like he will always make the correct decision. You know, there's no sort of pretending that he might make an error in judgment at any point. Except for sometimes he passes and sometimes he doesn't. If he passes, then nobody gets any points. And I feel like there are times when like I clearly had a winning pair mm. and he let me have it anyways, which if he didn't, the game would just never end. Oh, that's interesting because so. I, I was going to say, yeah, because I, I really enjoyed the idea of like, yeah, so obviously you've got your, your face up card and your, your hidden one. And yeah, it was like, uh, you know, you would start every turn being like, right, ideally, I want to make a hand with the hidden one because that will, you know, that will scupper him. But if not, I can try and make a good hand with the the face up card. And then that will at least force him to, um, you know, concede that round. So I can't, I might not be able to win any points, but I can definitely make him lose some by, you know, by by making mm-hmm. him uh, concede. So that, that was quite enjoyable in and of itself, sort of, you know, sort of. <laughs> every turn being like right i want to ideally i want to do this but if i can't can i at least do this um like you know if i can't win can i at least stop him from winning you know yeah but also the yeah the fact that like the, you know of the available hands you can make like yeah you know mostly you're aiming for doubles but if you can get a triple that like a triple trumps any double so you might sort of straight away you look and it's like ah jesus i can only make like a low double and then it's like oh no hang on a minute i can make a low triple that's <laughs> so even though you know 
like there are cards that have like a lesser yeah. value they can if played correctly and if you're lucky with the cards you can choose from there are still ways to to win um i thought it was really nicely done i mean is this is this an existing game or is this no no this is this is entirely okay. Cliff johnson's invention and it's absolutely brilliant mm. and uh yeah, no, this is the thing I kind of most remembered and has, I, I, I think about this a lot because I teach that class on traditional card games. And, you know, if, if I ever get to make my big AAA game, it'll be a game that teaches people how to play card <laughs> games uh, in this kind of like the learning is the puzzle kind of way. Yeah. The thing is, is like this is the right level of complexity for that because yeah. there is some strategy of the game. And even if you have the list of all the hands and all that, yeah, you still have to think about you can yield mm. and then you lose points, but the other person can't get some. You can, as you said, kind of just try to uh, hate draft their best card so that if they win, they don't win that many points. You can, uh, and you always go first, which I think is an advantage Yeah. Um, in terms of picking. So I think it'd be, I might write this down and try, we're doing tarot games in a couple of weeks in my card game class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I may actually try to have them play this two player with the rules and just see what yeah. they think. Uh, and it's only the major arcana. I don't know if we pointed mm. that out. So it's not as baffling as it might sound. It's like <laughs> just the whatever 21, 22 uh, fancy cards. I figured out, I don't know, maybe 60, 70 percent of what was in what hand and what beat what. Like, again, it, there's that thing of like, you can brute force it a little. It's not binary. You don't have to figure everything out. The more you figure out, will the more it will help. Mm. And I think that's one thing that makes this so, yeah, incredibly well designed and so audacious to make it literally the first puzzle you encounter if you're just going in order. And then <laughs> yeah. if you go no, then the next puzzle is a word search. <laughs> yeah, uh, It's very, I mean, I keep bringing up, I guess, you know, Elden Ring and all that, but like it is very the first boss in a Dark Souls game Yeah, of just mm. like you just get smushed and you're like, okay. I have just learned I don't need to do this all yes. in order. Yeah, absolutely. A word search. Yeah. <laughs> I can, that's like the hollow. That's the equivalent of a hollow. <laughs> I did um, uh, enjoy the fact that, so the, uh, again, the, this walkthrough I used sort of pointed out that like the old man can win as many times as he likes. You only have to win once. So technically, if you just mm-hmm. want to click away randomly, you are eventually going to win. And that, and like, and it sort of mentions, you know, if you want to like set up keyboard controls, you can just hold the enter key for several minutes and eventually you will win. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, that's the, the most unsatisfying I mean, way. Infinite of... monkeys with infinite controllers could eventually be Dark Souls. But yeah, exactly. Know. But uh, yeah, I think the thing that I would like come away from this game saying is like anyone who's listening who has a desire to play this game. This particular puzzle was one that I had like an immediate negative emotional reaction to just because this isn't my type of game, but it's so approachable and it's so like manageable. Like it really isn't going to be throwing you for any like complicated loops with regard to like strategy. Like it really isn't like, you know, card games are the place where designers can show off their you know, complicated design chops. He's really not trying to do anything fancy with this one. Like, give it a try. Write down everything that you learn along the way, and you'll be surprised how quickly the strategy ends up coming together. Just, uh, you know, give it a shot. Don't be intimidated. <laughs> I mean, and, and equally, like, if if you if you do just want to look up the the values of all the hands and stuff, you're not like it. That's it's not still pretty enjoyable. Like it is, yeah, much. like it is cheating to an extent, I suppose. But you've still got to do like quite a difficult card game against mm-hmm. a largely infallible mm-hmm. AI opponent. So it's <laughs> yeah, don't feel like you're ruining it for yourself if you do have to look that up. I think, and it's it's long as well. I yeah. think it's balanced pretty nicely. Yeah, yeah. Like the 
you, it's first to get to 700 points. Mm-hmm. I think the highest value pair hand might be 60 or 70. I think it's 81 is the highest. Okay. I think if you get a triple, it can go up to about yeah. 100. And it, yeah, technically it is, mm. for, for reasons I do not want to speculate on, the winning score is 666. Oh, I thought it was 700. So I think, is, that, is this now, a difference I'm... between versions? Because the game says 666, but the, the walkthrough I was looking at said 700, which hasn't, you know. It might be that they, the, the anti-Satan people changed it in the DOS version. Those anti-Satan people always <laughs> yeah. the 80s with our, <laughs> with our video games. <laughs> uh Next notable one-off puzzle It's going to probably move a lot quicker through the rest of these. Um, there are some tracing patterns from memory. There will be a little pattern, uh, kind of a grid-based pattern on screen that will flash on and off for a little while. And it's up to you to just kind of like follow the same path with your mouse. Um, it will eventually combine four patterns yeah. into one long pattern that you have to do from memory or take a screenshot that you can have pasted on the big screen <laughs> over <laughs> and then it'll give you a another tracing from memory puzzle at the end of that mm-hmm. um pretty straightforward for what it is i think it kind of speaks for itself uh, the next one was kind of interesting uh and another one where these next couple have uh some interesting ramifications playing them on modern hardware <laughs> Uh, this one, following a 3D-ish trail of uh, of boxes with your mouse cursor that kind of loops in and around itself, which in theory I found really enjoyable. It's kind of like um, when your computer used to freeze and then you used to take the error window and drag it all over the computer <laughs> and get these like 3D waves of like this snaking trail as a... It, was, it reminded me of... The, you know, the thing when you complete a game of solitaire on Windows 95 and all yeah, the cards yeah, are yeah. bouncing. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> course, what I was thinking yeah, of. Well, like, and it's just an interesting sort of technique because all it is is, you know, one sprite sort of with an, with an after image every time it moves. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, as you say, it creates that strange sort of 3D effect. But So it is kind of a fun like detangling like a, a one long spaghetti mm. essentially. Um, and kind of like seeing how it loops in and around itself and seeing this played on original hardware, once you kind of lose track or once your mouse gets, uh, you know, gets off track, then it starts slowly receding and you can catch it again. Slowly, But if, uh, <laughs> well, that's the thing, playing on modern hardware with you know, more processing power, if you lose you know, if your mouse moves outside of this very narrow pathway, then it will like zip right back to the beginning. There's no catching mm-hmm. it. So it is a disadvantage of playing on modern hardware. Um, unfortunately, you have to do it correctly. The first, well, not the first time necessarily, but you have to get it correct all in one go. There's no catching it on modern hardware. This stressed me out so much. <laughs> For yeah. that, that very reason. Yeah. yeah. And, and I didn't yeah. realize, like, I thought that was just how it was designed. I didn't realize this was a... an issue with using you know better hardware i just thought that was how it was and i was like man this is atrocious i i thought it was you know the idea was it was like you know those not really puzzles but the sort of dexterity challenges where you're moving the the thing around an electric wire and you're trying not to touch it Mm. um yeah stressful uh i think i mentioned this i think it was when we were just talking before we started recording but if anybody is uh, interested in the game and wants to try it out the uh the Fool's Errand like main website that has very nice little downloadable emulators mm. and stuff. The uh, v- um, like the fake Mac emulator thing that they use for this has um, ad- adjustable speed settings. Oh, and I'm pretty sure that using this, uh, it automatically starts you oh, off in four times speed, so everything's very very quick. God, and I didn't realise until I got to some of oh. these later on puzzles. <laughs> uh, never mind. 
Well, speaking of which, speaking of games that are more challenging at either a higher emulation speed, (laughs) as it might turn out, or on modern hardware with our faster processing speeds, kind of the final, not, not really the final boss of the game, but the final boss of the first half of the game, as it were, um, the high priestess puzzle, which is uh, clicking spells, and that is the uh, the fiction within the game, numbered from 99 to 1 in descending order on a horribly flashing screen <laughs> as, you know, they're, they're just little tiles that have the numbers on them and they could appear anywhere on the screen and you just have to kind of like get lucky and click the tile in time. And I can see at the original speed, this could be somewhat manageable at uh, whether it is due to emulation at 4x speed or whether it's due to faster processing on modern hardware. This is uh, this is not only virtually unplayable from a gameplay perspective. I mean, I was able to finish it, you know, but it took way longer than it should have. And the entire time you're staring at this like seizure inducing, horrible <laughs> flashing image, even as somebody who has never had like any kind of averse reaction to flashing lights or anything in the past, like it started to get me like really kind of drowsy and uncomfortable and mm-hmm. kind of nauseous as well. Mm-hmm. Like just very, very unpleasant to play and not even like a fun puzzle as it were, because at this kind of forex speed, you would be given like, you know, less than half a second to click it. You had to have your mouse already in the right place and then react like instantaneously to get it. Like the the fact that, you know, you start out and you're kind of like, okay, this is quite uncomfortable, but obviously as I, you know, the more I click, the more numbers I click through, the fewer numbers there mm-hmm. will be to click on. This, you know, it will slowly get more manageable as I go. And then it's like, no, the pace just gets faster and faster and faster. It's space yeah, invaders. Yeah, yeah. But clicking on numbers. Yeah. Even better. <laughs> um, so yeah, as you say, I, I, the last I think it was the last five. I was just clicking in one spot <laughs> and hoping that the number landed beneath the cursor as I clicked. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was ridiculous. I think by the time I got down to about twenty, I just closed my eyes and just spam clicked on the screen until it yeah. stopped, and it took a while. <laughs> <laughs> really unpleasant. Yeah, I, I I guess I had it set to the correct speed because I do a lot of. Max mm-hmm. stuff so it wasn't absolutely mm-hmm. brutal but it was it i definitely felt it as a gauntlet and i mean it seemed i think at regular speed it is a reasonable gauntlet if that is the effect you're trying to go for which clearly like it's not a puzzle yeah. right and it did worry me when i realized because of course my pitch for this kind of game is always hey it, you know i know it's from the 80s and maybe you know you'll get stuck or something but you can always just look up the answer uh and then i was like all oh, right there are a couple of these that are just like you have to do this this thing and if you can't do it uh you're screwed uh yeah. and yeah that one i apologize on the part of uh emulation <laughs> cliff johnson the other one that was a bit similar to that is i think you just have to keep avoiding a little thing that chases you around the screen and that mm, was yeah. very difficult with the the speed being as it was mm. on the emulator i was mm. using yep but eventually i mean it is all doable you know i got through it anyways and so Maybe look into those speed settings if you are playing it on an emulator as well. Learn from our mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Control H. Finally, the game does resolve into a series of final puzzles once you've assembled the sun's map and rearranged everything, which I will say is a little bit of a chore in and of itself. I, I find it very enjoyable because all of the pieces, like as such a little store as such little tiles, tell like a surprising amount of story in each of them. Like they're very well drawn. But Mm. just the fact that, like, I think this is the one aspect of the game that benefited from the transition to color, because Mm -hmm. in black and white, 
as such tiny tiles, it could be really difficult to determine kind of like what's what and what is supposed to go next to what it's um and then as like an 80 piece puzzle it's a uh, quite challenging but once you get through the sun's puzzle then um, you are finally left with a few puzzles that are embedded within the sun's puzzle so within the sun's puzzle there will be sometimes like like the corners of certain images will combine to create like an extra crossword puzzle or, <laughs> you know, an extra unscramble the word puzzle. Like it'll generally be types of puzzles that you've encountered before, sometimes a little bit more difficult, but um, it's just kind of a final gauntlet as you find these 14 treasures and, uh, you know, essentially kind of plays back into the story because you are essentially revisiting places that you've already been and using clues from the story that you've already experienced to find these treasures, which were all this time kind of disguised in plain yeah. sight. This is where your uh, your sheet of paper that you wrote everything down on, Sean, wrote all of the, <laughs> the spell words and stuff, the run, new, fee, all uh-huh. of that stuff ends up coming okay, in here. Okay, cool. And yeah. you, have, you have to kind of figure out which words come from which section of the mm-hmm. map, and then you're given a vague clue about sort of the kingdom of pentacles or something, mm-hmm. uh, which then turns into... Uh, a huge grid of all these three-letter words, which then when you put them all in, when you get them from the the six different pages that are technically in the Kingdom of Pentacles, then it spells something out, and then you put that in a crossword, <laughs> and that crossword is 14 more clues. Like It's it's a lot to drop at a point where you honestly expect you're going to finish the map, that's going to be the end of the game. And th- at that point, you've already done quite a lot. But then to throw this <laughs> extremely like meta-involved puzzle, <laughs> which pulls information from every single other thing that you've looked at, which I, th- I believe is about 80 pages worth of stuff, it and becomes pretty obscure and uh, abstract of itself. The only only upside to this is you can technically just see the answers and type them in and not do the legwork for it if you just want to see right, the, the yeah. final cutscene of the I game. Mean, it's, it's funny, isn't it? So, I mean, obviously, I can't, you know, I, I didn't get to this bit. Um, I do really want to, though. I mean, I'm quite excited about, about doing it. But it's funny how, you know, we, we've talked so much about how accessible this game is and all these sort of interesting ways it, it gives you a leg up and sort of makes you feel. Like, you know, this isn't going to be as hard as you think it is. And then it drops this, which, as you say, is, is I guess, is you know, quite a hike in, in difficulty, I suppose. But also, it's incredibly impressive. <laughs> like, it's not, you know, it's not yeah. like, oh, it's not like a boss yeah. in a game that can kill you in two hits, naming no names. Um, but it's, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's so, like, just the idea of it is fascinating to me. And I'm, and I'm really looking forward to what, going to what it. What it reminded me of a little as the end of paradise killer yeah yeah yeah. in a very okay. different way but just this kind of like oh this is where it's all gonna come mm-hmm. together yeah and right it is kind of like the final boss level you know i i haven't solved them but i've gotten the lay of the land and i was just like yeah you you know you click on the little maze pieces of the map and now here's the actual final mm-hmm. boss maze you click on you know and and um and as I said, I'm near the end and there's still plenty of information. I'm like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with this. And I assume it all kind of comes together uh, at the very, very end. And and yeah, it, it's it's working on many levels. It's in terms of just like random guy coming out of nowhere. Like if the if they gave a Pulitzer Prize to Gertel Escher Bach, uh, they could have given a Pulitzer Prize to this. Like, I just kind of feel like it's that same like this is just a person who knows how to make a complete object that works on multiple levels simultaneously. And, you know, and seeing it done in 1987 mm-hmm. technology, 
is yeah. a marvel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, the, the layers behind this are truly, truly impressive. The way that it pulls everything else together, all the random nonsense that you saw earlier actually finally does come together to to produce something that is, uh, yeah, uh, impressive is the only way that I can describe it. And it's it's nice to hear that because obviously, you know, uh, even from the beginning of the game, you know, you see the the, the few, you know, map uh, pieces that it gives you right off the bat and it's like, yeah, just all these symbols and letters and different fonts and strings of characters and, and obviously init- like straight away you're like, I assume and want to believe that nothing here is by accident, nothing here is like a red herring, it's all part of something greater and i and again it's similar to the witness where you you know you might find the harder version of a puzzle and and you know before you've had the sort of the the lead up to it and you you might initially think like well this is like sod this this is you know this is impossible but it isn't it's just that you don't you know you haven't i don't know you haven't found your way there yet um and i'm excited yeah, for that you, happening you don't with understand this. it yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. The final aspect of the game that I want to talk about, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on it, we've talked about the graphics already and how good it looks on the two-color display, how it transitioned to a color display. But the audio, I, when playing it through, I did not notice elements of audio myself. But uh, Jesse, were you saying that uh, that this does have a little bit of audio uh, hidden somewhere? Yeah. It had some beeps and honks. Uh, <laughs> okay. I don't know what the sound saying was. So, I mean, things that are maybe useful as feedback of like, oh, clicking that square does nothing, but nothing, okay. um, nothing art- artistic, which is interesting because the Mac was capable of doing samples. And, you know, a lot of those early games like Dark Castle kind of stand out for having mm-hmm. these little triggered samples and stuff. But he I don't know if that just wasn't his aesthetic or but, you know, for a, for a game that seems to regard every single other you know, part of the artistic work as part of it, the sound seems extremely functional. Let's go over to our community. We have one piece of community correspondence from Patreon. This comes from Daniel Glass, who says, I don't remember how I learned about The Fool's Errand, but it was about 20 years after the game's original release. I saw it described as one of the best puzzle games on PC, and I was attracted to the variety of different game experiences it offered and the fact that there was an overarching puzzle to solve. Something about the frame story with a narrative that unlocked piece by piece made the game feel so much more special and compelling than a simple collection of mini puzzles. The gameplay was likable and pure and coalesced into something more than the sum of its parts. The 16 color palette was charming and somehow came across as timeless rather than dated in context of a puzzle game like this. I finished it after a week or two and then looked eagerly for another game like it only to learn about the planned sequel that had been sitting in limbo for several years. I checked back on it every six months or so and began to fear it was vaporware. The developer pulled a George R.R. Martin, but almost 10 years later, A Fool and His Money was released. I'm afraid I had moved on by then and was no longer interested. Shiny new consoles and a million casual game options on my phone had sprung into existence during this time period, but I do think I'll eventually give it a shot maybe after replaying the original, and then comes back later to say, A Fool and His Money seems to be available for $40, which is admittedly a big ask 10 years after its release for a game in that genre, but apparently, by all accounts, it's worth it if you're into this style of game. Perhaps the biggest puzzle of all is why Cliff Johnson insists on personally distributing the game himself to individual buyers rather than making it available on a more accessible marketplace like Steam. It may be his early experience with third-party publishers has soured him on the idea and maybe a lack of conversance with the distribution options out there. I recommend the Digital Antiquarian article 
on the Fool's Errand for more background on this fascinating man. Yeah, very interesting that sequel of Fool's Errand is available now. And uh, as far as I can tell, never or rarely goes on sale. So if you want it, then it seems like full price is really the uh, only option that you might have. Um, yeah, and again, only available through his website, not available through the traditional kind of digital retailers where we would expect PC games and Mac games to appear. But um, maybe that'll change someday, maybe not. It's a um, bit of a kind of oddity by modern standards in that regard. But uh, you kind of have to admire the PC mod scene feel of the operation. I, was, I mean, I was going to say, given that it's called A Fool and His Money and is, a, you know, as we said, perhaps a bit pricey, <laughs> are we sure this isn't an elaborate prank? And it's, <laughs> and no, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> It is 40 American dollars. <laughs> you can pay through PayPal, but it does go, uh, well, it's through that same website with its extremely hypnospace outlaw looking <laughs> fonts and background selections. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. We have a one three word review. We put out a call on uh, at Canon Rinse on Twitter the day of recording. Jesse, would you mind reading this one three word review? Blue Weasel Breath says, absolutely essential puzzler. Excellent. Let's go through our summaries. What did we come away from this game thinking and feeling? Um, John, let's start with you. So this is a cool one for me um, with extremely little previous knowledge. And I guess hand in hand with that comes with very little expectation. Like I, I realistically went into this just thinking, I have no idea what this is. But if Jesse recommends it, I'm sure it is. Even if it's not good, it's at least going to be kind of important and interesting to the history and i definitely was not expecting it to be a bunch of word searches and like weird crossword puzzles uh i i, I can't say that i was at all disappointed in it but it was just so far away from what i was imagining it might be but i when it comes down to it yes there's a lot of kind of not particularly impressive things like we all mentioned word searches <laughs> inherently i'm not particularly impressive but as a as kind of a grouping of everything as a collection of all of its uh all of its parts together it's actually i found it shockingly compelling for what you would nowadays in 2022 think of as being fairly obsolete product of why why is this a computer game you know there's now you just google like word puzzles and you get a billion of these things for nothing and as as you, one of you pointed out before like there's a there's a very fine line between a puzzle and a well thought out good puzzle and i guess that's one of the things that really really shines here is that the vast majority of the puzzles are very well put together and do feel satisfying to do them the ending of it with everything kind of coming together and overarching uh, is I think I've already said it three times. I can't think of a better way to say it. It is just extremely impressive to see uh, to see it all work out like that. So yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult thing to say. You should go and play this. Um, like it's it's a difficult recommend. But as a as kind of an artistic thing, the history of it and the like the the way that the creator has has put his heart into this, it does make it an important like pillar of the gaming history and. As always, thanks to Jesse for bringing it to my attention. It was really, really interesting to get out of my comfort zone like this. Excellent. I'll say for my summary here, yeah, I found it a very interesting experience kind of going back through the thing, which is so different from the types of puzzle games that I'm used to playing these days. 
The thing that stuck out to me once I finished it was that I'm not sure that it entirely benefited from being a computer game versus just a book. Um, obviously, a lot of the different types of puzzles, like the uh, the ones where you kind of mouse over parts of the screen and see the solution pop up, aren't things that you could do outside of a computer game setting. You know, obviously, the things like the uh, the cipher puzzles, I think, benefited from doing a lot of the legwork of you know swapping out letters automatically for you, and that made that a very kind of frictionless experience. Um, but the way that it all tied together felt very classical in its construction felt very much like a puzzle book, which, you know, obviously was this game's origin, ultimately. And so that does make sense. And so, you know, I think since since then, I'm used to seeing these types of games kind of come together in in ways that make more complete use of the interactivity of the medium. Uh, you know, The Witness does a great job of hiding the solution to its ultimate puzzle in plain sight and kind of making use of some of the meta interactive elements uh, throughout the experience really that it kind of cleverly introduces you to or lets you stumble upon yourself accidentally uh, throughout the gameplay experience. And, and this game doesn't really do anything quite as clever from a computer game perspective, but as a puzzle book, it is very, very clever. And I ultimately can't begrudge it transitioning to a computer game because if it was just a puzzle book, I probably would never have played it. And so from a purely high art snootiness perspective, I don't know if video gaming was a necessary medium for it to transition into. But, you know, since it did make that transition and just talking about the product as it is, I'm very, very impressed the two-color art is very beautiful throughout. It's um, really, really intricately constructed with a lot of care to each image and these uh, beautiful silhouette designs, which, you know, we don't see a lot of good silhouette art often enough. Um, the puzzles themselves are um, kind of a range from being too difficult from time to time to being that satisfying middle place to being word searches. And it's kind of everything in between but I would say for like 95% of the puzzles, really, really carefully and really well managed uh, difficulty balance that I found to be uh, a lot of fun to engage with throughout and uh, yeah, ultimately really glad that I played it and uh, really glad to have played it in black and white as well. I think, you know, taking that kind of time capsule and uh, playing it as it was originally intended um, gave it a... Uh, it gave it a really interesting feel, almost like those uh, woodblock print illustrations from uh, from early illustrated books. You know, it, it gives that feel of like aged authenticity in a way. So, um, yeah, interesting artifact, especially considering the history of the creator who doesn't like games and was teaching himself to program as this was coming together. Um, a real kind of unicorn, um, as far as I'm concerned. So, I'm not sure exactly like how much direct impact it had on future puzzle games, but at least kind of as a as a sideshow along the road of uh, of puzzle game development from beginning to the present day, um, a very, very interesting uh, game to play um, in that lineage. Sean, how about you? It's really nice to talk about um, an old game where not only are you not like making excuses for things that have not aged well or or whatever but actually the fact that like 
you know, like podcasts are good because in a sense they're like quote unquote old tech because you know they're they're not video or anything they're just they're just audio but that's why they allow you know they're able to fit into your life in in ways that like you know a youtube video can't right you can have a podcast on while you're driving or doing the dishes whatever mm-hmm. like i really love the fact that like with this it was like yeah it's super low res and there's no sound you know i'm lucky enough to work from home and it meant that like as i was working i just had it in a corner of the screen and would dip in and out of it um and I've had a really nice time doing that. Like, um, you know, obviously the last sort of couple of evenings before this recording, I was like, you know, I had a few sort of more concentrated sessions on it. But like Jesse says, it, it's a it's a really good game to sort of snack on rather than like just you know trying to binge it and trying to like you know like if you if you're interested in checking this out, like don't rush it by any means. Like have it like just just have it on. And, you know, just have it in the vicinity and kind of think about it a bit and then, you know, be happy to sort of maybe move away from it and then go back later or or what have you. Um, and like, and, and it was really nice that, um, so, you know, we, we mentioned a, a number of times that, yeah, my friend Cami uh, has started streaming this because like I, I started playing it and within, you know, sort of half an hour in, knowing that he likes, I mean, he, he really likes puzzles and he certainly has no qualms about playing older games. So I was like, man, you should try this. I think you'll really like it. And he... Yeah, I think he loaded it up and within minutes was like, oh, "I'm going to stream this. Like, this is going to this is going to be really good." And it was just, <laughs> it, and it was really pleasant because he was. So I was working from home, and I always have to have like sound on, right, in order to be able to concentrate because my job's quite boring. And I had I had Tree TV on, <laughs> which if you don't know, Tree TV is like an offhand like joke in a Joe Perra show on adult swim where he sort of mentions he'd really like to make his own tv channel which is just footage of trees set to nice ambient music and then they went ahead and did it as like a five hour youtube video so i sometimes have that on while i was working and then cammy starts his stream and he's like oh man there's no sound i'll have to put something on in the background i was like dude put tree tv on so (laughs) so that's what he did and um yeah and like and everyone in the chat was like man this music's really good like where's this from and this is like the perfect accompaniment to the game so you know, yeah, there's no sound, but like it's one of those that's really nice to just like, well, I'll just put your own soundtrack on it. Who cares? You know, um, it's yeah. I'm, I'm as I say, uh, sort of somewhat mortified at not having finished it in time for the show, but I'm. This is going to stay in my life for the next few weeks at least. Uh, I think um, because it's gonna. I think it's gonna be really fun. Like I'm now ahead of of Cami, but I think it's gonna be really fun. Like seeing him progress through it, and again, like I was saying, you know, that that sort of collaborative puzzle solving thing. Like it, when he reaches the point I'm at, I think that we'll then have like a really fun sort of back and forth, like figuring things out and talking to each other about it. So I'm, I'm excited about that happening. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm really, really glad uh, we, we played this. Yeah. Awesome. And Jesse, this was your suggestion for the volume of Kane and Rince. Why don't you take us out with your kind of final, um, final thoughts on The Fool's Errand? This is a cool game. I mean, and, and I'm always interested because I teach that 80s class and what kind of survives and what doesn't or what you have to uh, make account for or, you know, what students enjoy because, look, it's a college class and it's edifying versus enjoy like they would recommend to their mm. mom. Uh, and the fool's errand is in that narrow category uh, of games where I've had students play it, you know, for writing a, a response or whatever and be like, oh, yeah, I, I sent, you know, a zip file to my mom and two other people. Uh, and told them they should try this. It's awesome. Because, yeah, it the technology has regressed to the point where it does not get in the way too much. Uh, speed control aside. Right. By 1987, by a 
16-bit Macintosh with a one-bit screen. It's not a hassle. You know, there's things that evolve in game design because of pure technology. And then there's things that evolve because people figure things out. You know, tabletop games have improved a lot over the last 15 years, not because some uh, new tabletop technology has been figured out, but because people learn from each other's designs and, you know, become more experienced and understand the importance of these kind of underlying uh, conversations that you're having with the player and how to manage the dramatic arc of a game or a puzzle or something. And I just think that, you know, this is uh, whatever, 35 years ago, but it's as good as anyone's doing today. And I, I do really think uh, in not just because Elden Ring just came out, but in Miyazaki terms of like the trick to Miyazaki is he genuinely wants you to beat his puzzle. Mm. Right. He does. He, he, he wants you to go through some pain on the way <laughs> so you can really feel the triumph. But he is on your side. He knows he has all the advantages. Right. He knows this isn't a game and knows that the trick is to make you feel like you were entirely in control of being able to do that, but that on some level he is managing the dramaturgy uh, through his rules and his problems that he's setting out. And in the same way, yeah, I think I do want to defend it as a computer game instead of a book because I think the way it titrates out information is incredibly important to its effect, right? The fact that you can't flip to mm. any page. Maybe you could do this as like some sort of legacy thing where you're, you know, constantly opening up envelopes and et cetera. But certainly in terms of a, a normal book, I think just the fact that it can hide and titrate information and even putting aside the more video gamey stuff like the Maze of Winds or whatever, even with the word searches, I'm going to defend the word <laughs> searches here, right? A word search in a book, you know you have the answers because they list all the words for you. And that is a trivial sub-teacher kind of event. Having someone say, okay, there's 25 vegetables hidden in this grid. And then I will give you the feedback of if you highlight, even if you don't know what an endive is, if you <laughs> highlight it, I will beep and, you know, whatever. And when you get down to the last couple, it's actually going to be probably kind of hard by definition, just like any find the items, just like Paradise Killer gets hard because you're like, whatever I haven't found by definition is the stuff I keep not mm. seeing. And right, finding Bobo Link or whatever, <laughs> you know, me screaming leak uh, at Cammy <laughs> when he's on the vegetable one. Like, I don't think you get that unless it's in a computer format. And I, I, I'm really impressed by how judiciously uh, and tastefully he uses uh, the affordances of a Macintosh and occasionally does something wacky that's almost like an eternal darkness playing with your mind affordance thing. But a lot of times it is very subtle, just like it's a it's a more elegant word search. And yeah, I don't know. I, I as I said, I'll probably end up using this uh, in my classes uh, and I do want to play three and three, which was kind of the semi sequel. And uh, Stephen Sondheim uh, put uh, at the same level as the Fool's Errand is his favorite puzzle games. So uh, I'm looking forward to that one. And I would not be surprised if I plunked down the $40 uh, for Fools and his money after I, you know, finish this and, and play that because this guy knows what he's doing and it's worth it. If you, and I'm not even a big puzzle guy, but I, I've grown in appreciation thanks to this, the fortuitous timing of this with doing, you know, a puzzle design unit. I really do feel like playing this has given me a real object lesson in what it means to be, you know, a good puzzle maker. Hats off to Cliff John. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. That's very interesting to talk through such a uh, such a unique and um, an old game at this point. I always love discovering new things and uh, blind spots in my own personal history. So it remains for me, Ryan, to thank John, Jesse, and Sean, as well as our community correspondents, plus, of course, all of you for listening. 
Sean, we mentioned at the top of the show that you belong to the computer game show. Is there anything uh, <laughs> anything happening recently over there you would like to draw people's attention towards? Your Nuzlocke streams are very fun. I was going to say, say, yeah, I guess the, the, the most current thing is, yeah, I'm, I'm currently doing a Nuzlocke run of Pokemon Soul Silver, and it has been absolutely, like, started out really fun and like, oh man, this isn't going to be too bad. And then the last two weeks have been absolutely harrowing. Um, so check that out. It's 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 great fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you can find us on I mean find us on Twitch or YouTube uh, TCGS Co and same on Twitter and yeah or TCGS Co for the website and that's where you'll find everything. I guess. Great. Next time you can join us in issue five hundred and nine for Haunted Castle. Did my heart